there's one more something special that I want to talk to you about. Um, has nothing to do with an offering, but on December 29th, um, that is going to be the day that um, I give you the, the, the prophetic word that I believe the Lord has given me for 2020 about building godly generations. I want to tell you what I believe are the scriptures he put in my heart and the, and the words he put in my heart. So the 29th is going to be a very, very special day. Pastor Corey next week is going to be preaching our annual Christmas message. And you won't want to do, uh, won't want to do that. You won't want to miss that. I'm sorry. Hey, I've been working hard in this musical. My brain's a little fried. Bear with me here. Um, um, you won't want to miss Pastor Corey's Christmas message next week. But then the 29th, um, I'll be back with our message for the coming year and talk to you about the theme. There's something else coming on that we'll be reminding you of every week from the 29th forward, but I want to go ahead and get it on your radar now. Um, on January 19th and 26th, we are having two special services that are a call to consecration for the whole church. We don't do this often, but sometimes there are things that are so important that we believe the whole congregation needs to be brought together at one time, even though it's a little uncomfortable. We bring in a lot of extra seating. We have seating out in the foyer. Um, we did that this last year with our five encounters. And I, I want to tell you, something special happens when we all come together. I know we can't do that every week because we just wouldn't have any room. But I'm going to ask you to do it again on January 19th and January 26th as we have a celebration of life. I want to talk to you about why abortion is important. And I want to talk to you about why our stand against abortion is important. It's not a political talk. It's not about the elections that are coming up. It's the heart of the Lord, I believe, as I can best represent it from the heart of a pastor. I want to say it one time with such clarity that the church will never again have a question about it. Abortion is not a political issue. It is not a political issue. Most of America makes it a political issue, but it's no more a political issue than slavery was a political issue in the 1850s and 60s. And it's time for the church to step up, time for every church to step up. See, I believe there are four types of churches in America. I really do. One, there's what we call the apostate church. They've left the faith, they've left the scriptures, they've left the principles of godliness a long time ago, and they don't even factor into the, to the church's status right now. Uh, they're an apostate church. But there are other churches, churches that believe the Bible, but they're angry churches. They stand for righteousness, they believe every word of scripture, but they are so hateful in the way they present their message. They make people that have experienced abortion, uh, they make them feel like they are the enemy. They hate not just the sin, but it appears they hate the sinner. And I want to say something very clearly. When we are going to talk about abortion on this special gathering in January, we're not talking about the person who has had an abortion. 
We're not talking about the teenage girl that finds herself pregnant and doesn't know what to do. We're not talking about people that we consider the victims of abortion. It's not the victims of abortion that we want to focus on except how to help them. It's about the sin of abortion, the primacy of it in our nation, and what the church needs to do. Those angry churches, they, they misrepresent God's heart. And I doubt God's going to use them much in the coming days till they get past their anger. There are other churches that are lovers of Jesus and they believe the word, but in an attempt to make everybody happy and not offend anybody, they have compromised the teaching on abortion or gay marriage or whatever it is. Whatever causes a stir in society, they just compromise that. They say, well, you know, we, we, God hasn't called us to deal with that. God's called us to deal with this. And I understand where they are, but loved ones, I don't think God's going to use them much either. But I tell you what I believe there is. There is a remnant who can understand the word of God and love sinners more than they love their own life. If there's a church that can understand why something is a sin and then make the grace of God so appealing to the world that they will win the world, that's the remnant church and that's what we're trying to be and that's what we're after. Now that first Sunday when we come together, again, it's not about politics and it will not be addressed at all from a political position. It's going to be from a theological position. And um, guys, I want to tell you, it is one of the most critical things in the future is that churches understand what abortion is and churches understand what our stand ought to be against it. It's critical. It's the, it's the Rubicon. It's the dividing line for so many churches. And we must understand that abortion is sin. You say, well, what about the children on the border? What about homelessness? You're comparing apples and oranges. There are things we need to do about children on the border. There are things we need to do about homelessness. There are things we need to do about poverty. But don't, don't bring that big butt into the argument about abortion. Abortion is a choice. Abortion is a sin. And abortion is what drove the inhabitants of the land out of the land or infanticide. And infanticide was the straw that broke the camel's back when God said to Judah, you have done worse than your sister Israel. It's not a political issue. Oh, it is on some low level. It's not, it's not just, well, you've got that problem, but then you've got all these other problems. This stands head and shoulders above anything else in our nation. There are a dozen other things we need to fix, but don't try lumping them into the basket of abortion to neutralize abortion or minimize what abortion is. We have to understand what abortion is and we need to understand why it's biblically wrong. And on the second Sunday, we're going to change gears and we're going to have a day of incredible information. We're going to find out how we can present the message of life not in a condemning way, but in a way that gives hope, in a way that gives help. We're going to talk about how you can recover from the pain of an, 
and abortion. We're going to talk about how you can recover from the guilt of your past. We're going to talk about if you're facing a situation where abortion seems to be the only alternative, we're going to have information. We're going to have counselors. We're going to have a whole um, plethora of of information and resources because we don't want to just proclaim something wrong and then send people out with no hope. We want to we want to stand for righteousness, but at the same time, we want to fix the problem. The earliest Christians, when they were facing infanticide in Rome, they not only stood against infanticide, they went out of their way at great risk to bring those babies into their own homes and raise them as their own. So Christians, that second Sunday, we're going to learn how to be winsome in our approach. And we're also going to talk about adoption. We're going to talk about how you can make a difference. Uh, there's more to fighting abortion than just hating abortionists. In fact, that's not what we're after at all. So I wanted to give you a heads up. Since it's Christmas, you have to forgive me if I said anything wrong today. And uh, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to be making announcements about this, just reminding you of the, of the it'll be one service, it'll be in here, it'll be everybody together, and uh, it's going to be a time that I believe can be a life changer for our church and for you. Father, as we look to David today and we lay him to rest and review his life, we're asking that the strong power of the Holy Spirit would touch us and help us, would envelop us with your love and grace and help us to understand how to live our lives so that it might be said of us as it was of David, he or she was a person who chased God, a person after God's heart. We ask you to do this and we thank you for David. And today as a church, we honor that great man of God. Don't know if he can look in and listen, but David, we salute you and we thank you for your life of transparency in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the biggest questions when it comes to the life of David, I've been asked this more than once, especially SESL students will go through the Old Testament. And the question is asked, David did all of these things. How in the world can he be called a man after God's own heart? That's a good question. But it's the foundation of David's life. God said, I am looking for a man after my own heart. Now that picture on the front of your notes was taken at uh, what is purported to be the tomb of David. And uh, it's actually part of a synagogue. If you were there, the men go in one side and the women have to go in another. And there are always Orthodox Jews and rabbis and others that are, that are memorializing David like this gentleman was. And you can go and, and know that uh, uh, these people are honoring the life of David. The other two pictures, I always like to have my picture made with handsome people. That makes me look better. Um, that's me and my son, Jeremy, and me and Pastor Corey. This is outside uh, the upper room. Now, the upper room and David's tomb are essentially joined it's, um, it may be that that's why Peter on the day of Pentecost when he was preaching, he made an observation. He said, David's tomb is with us to this day. It may have been that he was just saying, look, obviously you can see it now. 
And I wanted you to just have a picture of, uh, of what it looks like today. Certainly it would have been different in, in David's time. But when I review David's life, I understand there's two dynamics we have to grasp. It's the heart of David and it's the heart of God. The two things can't be considered uh, apart from each other. There's a man named, uh, he, he was uh, a major general in the Marine Corps in, in uh, Korea, Oliver Prince Smith. He was in charge of the 1st Marine Division during that conflict and was in command during that uh, Chosin Reservoir conflict. If you know much about Korea, um, you know that that was the Marines, one of their finest hours. Um, outnumbered four to one in the best conditions, 20 to one often, and sometimes as many as 40 to one when the Chinese entered the conflict and just poured over the Yalu River. The Marines found themselves fighting one war and then suddenly were thrust in the middle of another one. As they approached Chosin Reservoir, they basically said, this is the first battle of World War III. It was... Uh, it was a story marked by men like Chesty Puller, if you know anything about Marine Corps history. Chesty Puller was such a gung-ho kind of fella that when he saw a bazooka, uh, I, mean, I mean a flamethrower for the first time, he'd never seen a flamethrower, it was a relatively new development, and he saw it being held and just uh, annihilating its target. He looked at it and said, well, where do you put the bayonet? You know, he was that kind of a guy. But leading the 1st Marine Division was Oliver Prince Smith. And the story is phenomenal. I, I don't have time to tell the story. But the Marines at some point cut off 40 to 1. Um, they needed to retreat from the Chosin Reservoir. Of course, uh, Oliver Prince Smith said it wasn't a retreat. We're just advancing in a different direction. And that's exactly what they did. But at the end of the preparation to get the Marines out of the reservoir and to fight from a different place, one of the aides to General Print, or, uh, Smith said, well, the Chinese don't have a chance of stopping us now. And Oliver Prince Smith looked at him and said, Bowers, these men are Marines. The Chinese have never had a chance of stopping us. And boy, I tell you, I, I teared up when I read that because, because I just read what they came through. I tell you that story because that's as good an illustration of David's life as I know. On one hand, David was a man who lived his whole life in a precarious position had to fight his way out of it. He overcame odds. At, at almost no point were the odds in his favor. Numerous times it looked for certain that David was going to be crushed. If you don't believe that, read the Psalms. I don't want to remind you, pick up a copy of the Psalms book. David lived walking on eggshells so many times and he lived in such a precarious place of, that he could fall from any minute. Yet in the Psalms, he cries out, I, I can't win this battle, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me. You are my refuge. You are my fortress. David understood that even though he was constantly outmanned and outgunned and outpositioned, 
there was something working for him that was beyond anyone's wildest imagination. It was that God was his refuge and his fortress. Um, Oliver Smith, when interviewed by the news media, asked how they got out of Chosin. He said, well, one of my aides said to me, and, and he prefaced it with this. He says, he's not a religious man at all. But I asked him to evaluate the Chosin Reservoir campaign, and this is what he said. Every step we took, we took in the hand of God. That's the way David was. Every step he took, he took in the hand of God. Now, to understand why David was a man who chased after God, and to understand why David had these incredible victories from the Lord, let's go back to the story of the rejection of Saul and the preparation for the anointing of David. 1 Samuel 13, verses 13 and 14. Samuel said to Saul, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. And listen to this. Here's where we're introduced to David the, uh, as, as king. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. He says, Saul, that's not what you've been. A warrior? Yes. Brave? Courageous? Yes. Organized? Yes. A fighter? Yes. But what God has been looking for the whole time is a man after his own heart. And God has appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Well, that was a heartbreaker to Saul, but it baffled even the wisdom of Samuel. Because when Samuel followed the Lord's instructions and went to the house of Jesse, knowing that one of his sons would be anointed king... Every one of them passed before him, but the Lord said, this is not him. Samuel was saying, this has got to be him. You would have think Samuel realized the last time they chose the one that looked like a king. Maybe God's up to something. And the, the Lord is questioned by Samuel. And the Lord says to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look on the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Let's fast forward to the New Testament. Did David live up to that expectation? A man that was pursuing, a man that was chasing God's heart? Acts 13. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. After removing Saul, he made David their king and God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now, when we wrap up David's life, I didn't give his death justice last week. We talked more about what happened right before he died and right after he died with Solomon. We don't know how David died. We don't know if he died quietly in his sleep or if he was attended by family. We, just, we don't know. But David passed last week. Um, if, you were here, uh, if you were not here 
and you want to send flowers, send them to the missions fund of the church. Make a donation to the missions fund of the church or parking lot. David will appreciate it. Now, here's the central truth. If you ever wonder what God sees in you, remember, he sees in you. I think we've all had that moment. I know I have. Where in a moment of weakness or failure or poor faith or bad decisions, I say, Lord, I don't know why you ever chose me. I don't know what you see in me. But that's how God operates, loved ones. He sees in you. God seldom chooses outwardly because of that appearance. Sometimes when Paul spoke to the Corinthians and he said, there aren't many among you that are mighty and wise and noble. He didn't say there are none. He just said, there aren't many. Sometimes you'll just look at somebody that drips talent and ability and you just say, oh, no wonder God uses them. But 99% of the time, and maybe even in that other 1%, there's something on the inside that God looked at, not the outside. It reminds me of a cartoon I saw. There was just the most horrendously ugly pastor that had just been selected. I mean, he was ugly, looked like he had been, you know, kicked in the face repeatedly by a mule. And the pulpit committee is looking at him and said, well, we made a good choice. He's not much to look at, but I guess the probability of moral failure is very low. You know. <laughs> I'm letting the rest of you catch up. And... <laughs> if you have been chosen by God, believe me, it's not because of your talent. He can use your talent. It's not because of your education. He can use your education. Someone criticized John Wesley. They were a, uh, become a spiritual enemy of his. And they said, Mr. Wesley, we want you to know that God does not need your education to save the heathen. And John Wesley said, I know, brother, and neither does he need your ignorance to save the heathen, you know. Let me tell you why David was a man after God's own heart. Number one, we've got to look at what God knew. He knew, number one, that David was sinful. He knew, number two, that David was righteous. Now you say, well, which is it? Is he sinful or righteous? Well, there's an amazing thing that happens when someone comes to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They still have some tendencies. Now their nature has changed. You're not just a, a sinner that's decided to act better. You are a new creation. You are a new being. Paul described it this way. The things I once hated, now I love. And the things I once loved, now I hate. Our nature is changed. The old man is pronounced dead but let me tell you what happens from the moment you are saved and born again to the moment you go to heaven, either by the rapture or the, the grave, that old man, that old woman in you is constantly trying to resurrect itself. It's called fighting the flesh, contending the flesh. I'm born again. I'm, I'm a new creation. I am not what I used to be. But what the problem is, is that I'm not all I'm going to be. 
So we have this fight. Let me explain when I say David was sinful and David was righteous. When I say David was sinful, so were all of we. Before we came to know the Lord, we were bound by something that the Bible calls bondage, change. We were servants to sin. We were slaves to Satan. And we were victims of what, we're call, what theologians call total depravity. Now, some Christians say total depravity means there's absolutely nothing good in you at all. Nothing good in you at all. I don't think that's what total depravity means. Uh, I think there are sparks of goodness, not righteousness, but there are sparks of goodness in the worst people. I mean, even Hitler was good to his dogs. Y'all just aren't with me today. I, write this down. You'll appreciate it later. We don't believe that total depravity means we're as bad as we can be. Total depravity means we are as bad off as we can be. That's what total depravity means. Total depravity, I may be a basically kind and good guy. You may give to the Red Cross and ring the bell for Salvation Army and you may, you know, pay your bills and, and, and lead the homeowners association. You can be a good person. That doesn't mean that you're bad. It means that you're as bad off as you can be. See, that's what people in today's society don't seem to understand. And it's understandable that they don't understand. Because Jesus said it would be the Holy Spirit's ministry that would enable people to see the truth about sin and righteousness and judgment. Do you know the world cannot understand how bad they are without the revelation of the Holy Spirit? You and I can't understand how righteous we are through Christ without the revelation of the Holy Spirit. The intellect of man leads everybody down a wrong path. There are some seated here today, no doubt, that you would say, if I were to ask you, if you were to die today, why would you think you'd go to heaven? You'd immediately say, well, I'm better than Ted Bundy. Or I'm, I'm, I'm better than the terrorist. Or I'm better than the, the adulterer. Or I'm better than the rapist. But loved ones, you don't understand, that's not your ticket to heaven. There is one way to get to heaven and only one way to heaven, and that is through the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, that's simple, but it's not so simple because we are inborn with this idea that I'm, I'm bad off, but not totally because I'm better than over here. Now, I may not be Mother Teresa, but I'm better. <laughs> Pastor, I don't even have to look, for, look far. I, I saw my neighbor out the window last night. I'm better than my neighbor. But that's not what righteousness or unrighteousness is based on. Heaven is gained by one thing. The receiving of Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Hell is your destination based on one thing. Your rejection of Jesus as personal Savior. You say, well, well what about stuff I do? Well, that's called the doctrine of works. And works will enhance your existence in heaven or works will exacerbate your existence in hell but good works don't take you to heaven and bad works don't send you to hell the issue loved ones in an age of tolerance in an age of multiculturalism orthodox christianity says this a man goes to heaven for one reason a woman goes to heaven for one reason 
child goes to heaven for one reason, uh, if they pass that age of accountability or, or innocence. It's because Jesus was made Lord in their life. If someone goes to hell, it won't be because they've been saved and spoken tongues all their life, but somebody pulled out in front of them and they cussed that person and then right then Jesus came. Oh, bad timing for the rapture. And all of heaven says, well, you were doing fine till you cussed close, but no cigar. No, that's not the way it is. That's not the way it will be. Because now, I, I, no doubt we'll get, when we get to heaven, we may get a spanking. But we go to hell for one reason only, and that is rejecting Jesus. That's why the critical issue this Christmas is what do you do with Jesus? Not do you give to the Salvation Army. Not do you give to the parking lot project. Not any good work. The question is, what do you do with Jesus? Now, let me put it to you another way and we'll move on when I talk about we're as bad off as we can be. Total depravity says, does not say I'm as bad as I can be. Total depravity says I'm as bad off as I can be. That means I am in an utterly, totally, completely helpless position to make myself get to heaven. There's nothing I can do to do it. You say, well, well, then you're telling me there's no difference between good moral people and, and wicked people? Well, let me put it to you this way. Let's say that to get to heaven, you've got to be able to jump to the moon. Can't use a Saturn V rocket. Can't use space shuttle. You have to jump from here to the moon. Well, some people are jumping from Mount Everest. They are at the highest place on earth. They're closer to the moon than anybody else on the planet. They're going to jump from there while somebody is just down at the Dead Sea, the lowest place on earth. And they're going to jump. I want to tell you, there's no better chance for the person on Everest to make it to heaven than there is for the, or, or to the moon than there is for the person at the Dead Sea to make it to the moon. We're just jumping from different positions. There has to be something that propels you to the moon. And whether you jump from Mount Everest or whether you jump for, from Casey or whether you jump from the Dead Sea, nothing can get you there except the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the state we're all in. Now, uh, I encourage you, if you want to be sure David believed this, don't do it now, please, but read Psalm 51, his Psalm of Repentance, and you will see that David said, I am broken. I, I, am, I am a wreck. He never refers to anything good that he has done. He says, I am not worthy to stand in your presence. He says, be merciful upon me, O Lord, according to your tender mercies, your steadfast love, blot out my transgressions. He knew that it was all in the hands of God. And when we bring our sin to Jesus, are you ready for this? When we bring our sin to Jesus, that's when another world's power takes over. That's when your robe of righteousness, that's a biblical analogy for wearing a righteous robe, uh, you know, and, and your standing was determined often by your robe, but your robe is nasty, it's dirty, it's tattered. And I'm, I don't say this for shock value. I don't say this to be crude. I, I say this to show you the intensity of the inefficacy of our good works. He said, our righteousness in Hebrew, in uh, uh, Isaiah, our righteousness is as filthy rags. And the word that was translated filthy rags spoke of the garments 
or, or pieces of cloth that would be used by a woman during her menstrual period. It was also the type of uh, cloth that would be used to wrap victims of war that had died. It was associated with blood. It was associated with ceremonial uncleanness. And you know what? That's our best. That's our best. <laughs> no, we don't have to wear that used, that tattered, that soiled, that ceremonially unclean robe. When we come to Jesus, we receive his robe of righteousness. We are justified and we stand before God, not just with our sins forgiven, but we stand before God as though we had lived as perfectly as Jesus Christ because we're wearing his robe. So David was sinful. He was forgiven. And I know that was before the days of the new birth. I know that. But David had been forgiven but he still had these sinful tendencies. But David was also righteous because he put his whole trust in the Lord. David set his heart to journey. I'm going to explain that in just a moment. Let me, let me be sure that you're up tracking with me. At every phase of his life, David's goal was to serve God and God's people. No matter what David did wrong, no matter how David failed, no matter how David was angry, at every phase of his life, David's goal was to serve God and serve God's people. David was not the kind of person that would come to church and then lay out six months till he had a need, then come back and lay out. No, every move, and don't get me wrong, you're welcome if you only come every six months. You know, a lot of pastors are mad. They say, well, I get mad at Christmas. People show up at Christmas, Easter, don't show up the rest of the year. I'm, a, I'm celebrated. That's two times a year I get to preach to those folks. That's two times a year I get to welcome you and let you know you belong here. David's life was to serve God and serve his people. That was his goal. David's life was devoted to God's presence. Loved ones, again, I'm not trying to sell a book because I told you if you don't have money for the book, the bookstore will just give you a copy. But get that copy of the Psalms book and let 2020 be a year where you read through the Psalms at least two or three times in a year. And I guarantee you, when you follow a man like David and Asaph and other writers, when you see them following God, these Psalms are expressions. of a, You know, music has always been an expression of our heart. You know, uh, when my daddy and mama got married, they, they had the, the, the song that was the hit all over the nation, You Are My Sunshine. And songs express our feelings. I heard one the other day I thought was unique. Uh, he says, I went to visit my fourth wife to give her a third. No, I went to visit my third wife to, uh, uh, to give her a third wife to give her a second chance to make a first class fool out of me. I, you know, that's, you can just feel the ethos in that song, you know. Had a friend I went to seminary with that was preaching against the prosperity gospel and talk about people eating fine buttered rolls. And he sang a song, what you gonna do with the butter when the roll is called up yonder, you know. <laughs> Songs, you know. You read the Psalms and what you see is the struggle of men 
they're struggling from high, they're struggling from low, they're struggling from anger, they're struggling from disappointment. Get a hold of that book and begin to read the Psalms and understand what David fought with and understand that David came through. There's a passage I want to direct you to. I, I need to preach on it sometime, but not today. Psalm 84, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. He says, now when they go on this pilgrimage, they go through the valley of Baca. They make it a place of springs. Autumn rains cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength uh, till each appears God in Zion. The psalmist is saying, there are people that have set their heart on pilgrimage. They go from valley to valley, from place to place, and every place that's a dry place, they turn to a watered place. And we don't understand all that the psalmist meant in Psalm 84, but he said this, there are those who dwell in the presence of the Lord, and they've learned to dwell in the presence of the Lord by setting their heart on pilgrimage. Loved ones, if you live for Jesus from crisis to crisis, or from high point to high point, you are living a third class Christian life. I don't mean you're a third class person, but you, you're like a person that I read about that came across um, immigrating to America. They had waited for years to be uh, given their immigration status, and they, but they had to come up with enough money to sail across the Atlantic. This was back over 100 years ago. And they got the money together, this man and his wife, and they had just the cheapest they could get, um, they thought, and they, they packed bread and cheese. And for nearly uh, six weeks, they ate from that bread. It got stale. The cheese got hard. They ate and they survived. They came out and looked at Ellis Island. He put his arm around her and said, Mama, we made it. We may never want to eat bread and cheese again, but we made it. And somebody listened to them that was a steward there on the ship. And they said, you ate bread and cheese? And they said, yes, we couldn't afford to buy food buying our ticket. He asked to see their ticket. And he said, sir, you don't understand. Three meals a day were provided for you on such and such a deck. You could have eaten anything you wanted for these six weeks of transit. And loved ones, that's what the Christian life is going to be like for a lot of people. I made it. I made it. Thank God I made it. I, you know, but we never lived in the grace and glory God intended for us. Set your heart on pilgrimage. Now, we got to wrap this up. What are the Christian life lessons? There are four very simple ones. The first one is perhaps the most important. The defining difference between Saul and David had nothing to do with ability, talent, strength, or valor. Saul had all of that. He was an able man. He was a manager of a successful farm. He had all kinds of talent. He was a strong warrior. We, we focus on Saul's sins, but Saul won many, many battles for Israel. Saul was a great warrior and he was courageous. The only time we see him shirking from his responsibility is in the fight with Goliath. That wasn't the difference between Saul and David. The cycles that Saul's life went through never, hear me, 
He went through the same kind of things David went through, but the cycles of his life never brought him back to God's presence. David went through those cycles and without fail, David came back into the presence of God. He came back over and over again. Loved ones, there's nothing that separates you from a victorious Christian that you might be jealous of. You know, when you watch the Olympics, do you know that sometimes the, the difference between first place and 10th place might be less than a second? There, there's, no real, there's no real separation in ability. It's the heart. And Saul, every time he failed, would come back to his own device, come back to his own willfulness, come back to his own choices while David did the other. Can I tell you something that might shock you? Whenever we think about the failure of Peter and, fa and Peter denied the Lord, Peter, Peter just really, Easter's got to be his least favorite holiday. Because it's just one, it's just one mistake after another. And on that place of recovery where Jesus prepared the meal of fish upon a stone. And those of you going to Israel will go to that place. Um, and on that beach, Peter was just reeking with failure. And Jesus sat down by him and he says, Peter... Do you love me? Peter said, yeah, 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 yeah. Lord, you know I love you. I've said this over and over again. Are you doubting my love now just because I made a mistake? Feed my sheep. Yes, sir. Peter said, he'll never, I've been first all these years, three years, I've been number one. I'm going to get a promotion. Jesus walks back over to him. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. I love you. I messed up, but I love you. I love you. And finally, Jesus says, uh, he says, feed my lambs again, uh, feed my sheep. And again, he says, Peter, do you love me? And this time, Peter was grieved. He, he, and he was grieved because Jesus asked him over and over, do you love me? And it grieved Peter because Peter thought Jesus was rubbing it in. See, you know what Peter had said to Jesus just days recently, I mean previously? Jesus said, all of you will, must, will uh, forsake me. And uh, Peter said, but Lord, I love you. I will never forsake you. And Peter was probably saying, yeah, he's rubbing it in. I told him I loved him. Told him I loved him. I denied him. So he's just, he's just taunting me. Do you really love me? Hey, 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 do you really love me? John followed me right all the way to the end. Do you love me, Peter? John was at the cross. Maybe I should make him the premier apostle. Do you love me after all? And he was totally misrepresenting and misunderstanding Jesus. But I love it that last time Jesus changed his wording in order to make it a little bit clearer. He said, Peter, is it true that at the core of your life, you love me. And Peter got it. This is what he says. Lord, you know all things. You knew I was going to fail when I said I wouldn't. You knew I was going to dishonor you 
when I was saying everybody else will dishonor you. You knew that I was going to fall flat and with an oath deny that I ever even knew you just to save my skin. But, but Lord, you also know this. You know that at the end of the day, in spite of my frailty, in spite of my weakness, I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. And that was it. Loved ones, I want to give you an invitation to come home today. Those of you that may be carrying guilt and shame for your recklessness or your willfulness, those of you that are afraid to refer to him as anything but the good Lord, I'm, 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 I, 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 I cringe a little bit when I hear people talk about the good Lord because it's as though they've got to convince themselves that he's good and it's as though they're afraid to get on any first name basis with him. You, you love him, but you have failed him. You've had so many false starts. But do you realize that today the Lord's questioning of you is not about what you did or didn't do? Because he knows everything on planet earth gets set right if you can say this, I love you. I love you. That was the difference between David and Saul. Saul had an anointing, he had prophesied, he had brought victories, but Saul in those quiet moments of life, he turned to a solution of the flesh every time. Even when the hand of the Lord had left him, he begged Sam, uh, uh, Samuel to appear with me so that people will think I've still got the presence of the Lord. David, he said, I'm rotten. I'm rotten to the core. I knew better. I shouldn't have done it. And he ran right back into the arms of the Lord. Here's the second thing. Man looks upon everything that's on the outside. God sees that, but he sees the inside too. Now, it doesn't mean outside's not important. My pastor back in the hippie days of the 60s, he kept telling us we need to keep our hair cut. And one of us, not me, I had better sense, but one of us said, well, Brother Stevenson, Bible says God looks on the, or that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. He said, that's exactly right. Man looks on the outward appearance, so look like a Christian. But what David understood, yeah, the way I live makes a difference. The way I act makes a difference. The way I talk makes a difference. But what's really at stake is what am I on the inside? That was not an excuse for sin. But it was something that grew out of that first point. There's two more Christian life lessons. The first one is because God looks on the inside and all we can see is the outside. Don't be too hard on others. Be careful. Be careful before casting judgment. One thing I learned from David's life, almost above anything else, is that God esteems our standing based on what he sees on the inside of us, not the outside. I've known people that their personality was so rough and so harsh, they, they, could, never be a, they, could, they could never pastor God's flock. They just, they, they'd, first time a sheep gave them trouble, they'd kill them. No, I, I've known people that were an absolute, I mean, 
I, I, national and international known people, I, I, they've never been here, but I could call their names and I've had a privilege of working with them up close and personal. Two of them I'm thinking of in particular are the most rude people I have ever met in my life. Uh, I, I, was, I was given a chance to stand on a national stage with one of them. And I said, no way. I said, why do I want to drive out of town to stand on a stage and be insulted by somebody for two days leading up to the event? They said, well, it's a great honor to introduce him. I said, that's right. So find somebody that needs to be shown great honor. No, I said, I won't have anything to do with this person because this person is insulting. Now you say, Pastor, you shouldn't have been like that. Well, we're not preaching about my sin today. We're talking about David's. (laughs) So leave me alone. No, I I have found, you know, there's an old saying, you might not want to meet your heroes. Sometimes that's more true than you might think. But don't be too hard on others because all of us have glitches. All of us have chinks in our armor. All of us have weak spots. All of us have weak moments. So don't be too hard on others. But can I leave you with the last life lesson? Don't be too hard on yourself either. Don't be too hard on yourself. I I am a person that's kind of introspective and and, um, I, I I don't... thrive on, on stuff going on out here. I tend to be very introspective. I, every day I I need to, I, I need thinking time. I need, I need to process. I'm a very introspective person, but you know, that can be good, but it can also be bad because you can, if you choose to focus on your failures, it will paralyze you. It will paralyze you. But if you can learn to focus on God's grace and mercy, It will liberate you. It will liberate you. Now, what do we do with this? Well, I want to speak to those today for the next uh, five minutes and five seconds. I want to speak to those of you that may not know Jesus as your personal Savior. I also want to speak to those of you that have known the Lord but have wandered away. You've drifted. If you can remember a time in your life when you were more connected to the Lord than now, I'm speaking to you. First of all, I want to speak to those that don't know Jesus. There are four foundational legs to the gospel. Just like this thing I'm sitting on. Do I have four or five? Four. Okay. Starting to say my illustration's blown. But... Assuming I have four legs I'm sitting on, if one of these legs is taken away, I'm in trouble. I might keep my balance for a little while, but I'm going down. There are four foundational pegs to the gospel. One, God is a loving creator who created all things out of nothing and created us as the special object of his love. The second leg of the gospel message uh, of, of theology is that man, the crowning creation of God, rebelled against him. And so the the earth broke. Everything in creation, the cosmos broke because of sin, including our lives because of our rebellion. Number three, God said, I will send a solution to that problem. That solution is called Messiah. 
He will die on the cross paying the price for all sins. He will be the once and for all eternal sacrifice. That's the third leg. But the fourth leg is so critically important just as the first three are. And it is this. The fourth leg of the gospel is that God will treat us eternally based on our response to Messiah. God's not arbitrarily saving the world. God's not arbitrarily choosing some for salvation and some for damnation. That fourth leg says, heaven is your destiny if you make the right response. Hell, if you fail to make that response. Now, what is the gospel of Jesus? What does it center around? Let me tell you, I know there are a lot of people that have modified the gospel and have said portions of the Bible don't matter. But let me tell you, there are six things that are absolutely essential. Number one, we believe that Jesus is God. He's not just the best man that ever lived. He didn't become man like some religious body, I mean, uh, become uh, God. He has always been God in the beginning and before the beginning, Jesus existed. Jesus is God. And number two, Jesus came to earth born of a virgin. Um, Mary was a sinner just like everybody else. But God sanctified her life and allowed her to miraculously become conceived by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was born of a virgin. Number three, he lived a sinless life. Boy, we celebrate the virgin birth. That's a phenomenal miracle. But to me, that's, that's nothing compared to a man living over 30 years without sin. I, I've, I've got 30 minute goals and I don't make it, you know. 30 years of a sinless life. Number four, he died on the cross, a substitutionary death. He became the ultimate sacrifice for me and you and every man, woman, boy and girl who has ever lived. He, was, he died on the cross. The fifth prong of the gospel message is that he was raised physically from the dead by the power of God. And after his resurrection, he ascended at the right hand of God. And that means two things. To ascend to the right hand of God meant God fully accepted his sacrifice. And it also means he lives in a place of intercession for you and I, where he prays for us. He intervenes for us. He works in our life until the day that he will return and set everything right. You say, oh, I don't feel like God's working much for me. I, I read a quote by John Piper that my wife sent me a while back. And Piper said this. He says, at any given moment, God is doing 10,000 things for us. And at best, we're aware of two or three. That's where we are. We say, God, you're not doing anything. And then he moves and we say, oh, you are moving. But at best, we're seeing two or three of actions of God that are part of thousands and thousands and thousands of interactions that are taking place because of his grace and love. So what do we do today? If you're a Christian, you go home and you celebrate these next couple of weeks that are coming. If you don't know Jesus, when we ask folks to be dismissed and pray, uh, uh, some to come forward and pray, Come to one of our ministry teams that will be down here in the front. <clears throat> in fact, if you're a ministry team here, please come on down now and find your position before people stand so you'll be able to be seen by those who might be looking to make contact with you.
These people are representatives of our church. They're specially trained. They want to pray for you. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, without condemnation, without fussing, they can introduce you to the giver of life. But here's the last thing. Those of you that are here, you may be a member of this church. You may be a regular attender. But something has crept in. Something has crept into your life. And you might say, well, pastor, it's not a big thing, but something crept in and you have something between you and God. It may be guilt, may be shame, may be just coldness of heart. But I, I tell you, my last message before Christmas, well, Christmas Eve, I'll preach, but my Christmas gift to you is to let you know that there is the presence here today of the Holy Spirit that is ready not only to give new life to the unbeliever, but he's ready to give fresh life to the one who has grown cold. He's ready to bring back the new again. He's ready to bring back the song that you lost. Some of us are like Naomi that left Israel and went into Moab and the famine sapped everything out of her. She said, I went out full, but I've come home empty. And today you might say, Pastor, there was a time when I was full, but I'm empty today. We don't need to know the details. We don't need you to fill out an interview sheet. We just ask you to come home. Would you stand with me, please, as we dismiss today? Now, God bless those of you who need to leave. I know there are obligations. Um, some of you have to work, other things going on. If you need to go, go with the blessing of the Lord. If you're able to stay even five minutes, I encourage you to stay and just worship with the ministry team that will be singing in the background. But most importantly, if you need prayer for, for coming back to the Lord or coming to the Lord, maybe you're fine with God, but you just need prayer for healing or what have you. These brothers and sisters are here to pray for you. Father, bless as we go. Bring us back tonight for the celebration of Christmas uh, in our musical. We look ahead, Father, to the services over the next week and a half as we celebrate the birth of the King. May it be a time of great spiritual prosperity and blessing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you if you need to go. If you want prayer, please come this way. God bless you.